0: morning, everyone. If you want to find your seats, we'll get started. If you're new here this morning, my name is Brent Smith. We got it? I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, so we're glad that you've joined us this morning. And uh, Don preached last week, uh, but if you think back two weeks ago, I mentioned that we're now into one of the more uh, heavy texts in Hebrews. Uh, So we finished Hebrews chapter 5 last week, or two weeks ago, and this morning we're going to start to get into Hebrews chapter 6. And if you've been in the church for a while, or have spent any time in study, you know the reputation that Hebrews 6 has. He and his buddy Romans 9 have caused a lot of trouble in the church throughout the history, and uh, They're kind of the schoolyard bullies of the New Testament. And if you don't approach them with a certain amount of respect, they'll bust you up. Okay, so we're going to dive into Hebrews 6 this morning. And uh, before we read our text, I just want to give you two guidelines as we go through. So our passage this morning is talking about falling away from Christ, and it's a pretty severe warning, and so it's an intense and, uh, and really a terrifying passage, and I think when we read texts like this, our heart tries to do a couple of things to try to lessen the blow on us, and so the first thing you might do is to begin analyzing and looking at fine points of doctrine and spend this morning doing your cross-referencing and reading your study notes and not paying attention to the warning of Scripture. And there's nothing wrong with having right doctrine. That's good. I encourage you to do that. In fact, I should have encouraged you a few weeks ago and then you could be up here preaching Hebrews 6. Nonetheless. But... You might not agree with everything of where I land on some things. You might think I'm too soft. You might think I'm too hard. But the important thing is to realize the purpose of this message, of this passage, which is to push us on to our inheritance. Okay? So, don't miss the forest for the trees. And let's pay attention to what the text says. The second thing your heart might try to do to try to dull the sharp point of God's Word is to begin to get caught up in case studies. Where is this person? Were they a Christian? Have they fallen away? Were they ever a Christian? What will happen if this person continues in sin? And you get caught up in thinking about situations of other people and where they're at, instead of focusing on where you're at. So I want you to fight the tendency of your heart to do that this morning. So don't think about how these verses apply to this person or that person. Think about how they apply to you. So don't try to see where your friend or your son or your brother or your spouse fits into all this. Think about where you fit in with all of this. So I'm not preaching to the person beside you. I'm preaching to you this morning. So fight those two tendencies of your heart. as we go through this text. So due to the length of the text, because we're going to look at the whole chapter of Hebrews chapter 6, I'll just read it as we unpack it. I won't read the whole thing off the first. So let's pray and we'll get right into it. Father, we just thank You for Your presence with us this morning. We thank You that we can sing those great truths. We thank You that You are our rock of ages, and we want to hide ourselves in you, Father. And so we just pray that you would help us this morning uh, to have our hearts open to your word. We pray that your spirit would wield it and, uh, and that we'd leave a changed people uh, because of the power of your word and the power of your spirit. So I just pray that you would be with us. We thank you that you are our strength, you are our redeemer, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been reading your Bible for any amount of time, you've probably noticed two things. First, there are some beautiful, precious promises from God that concern our salvation. Whether it's the fact that He chose you before Genesis 1 ever happened, or about His faithfulness to us, or about the absolutely completed final work of Jesus on the cross, and the riches of God's grace poured out on us through it. There's a lot in there that seems to assure us of our salvation, because salvation is not our work, but God's. He chose us. We didn't choose him. Second, as you read the Bible, you'll notice some severe, terrifying warnings, which seem to warn us with the prospect that if we abandon our faith, continue in sin, Do not persevere until the end. We will face eternal judgment and separation from God. So the Bible is full of promises and whether we like it or not is full of warnings as well. And this morning we see both of those, the terrifying warnings and the precious promises in one chapter in Hebrews chapter 6. And so how do we come to terms with this perceived tension? And that's what I hope to accomplish this morning so first I want to look closely at what our warning is in Hebrews chapter 6 what is the action we are being warned against what is the danger that we face when we do that and what does scripture as a whole say about this then I want to look closely at our promise what does God desire for us what is the promise that we are to hold on to and are there other scriptures that support this as well and after we have spread both things out on the table, I want to help us to resolve this tension and apply it to ourselves. Not just for our intellectual benefit, but how we land on this determines a lot of how we live our Christian life. So here we go. We'll look first at the warning, starting in verse 4. So two weeks ago, we, we took on the first three verses, and we talked about growing up and maturing in Christ, and so we'll start in verse 4, and it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So, first question, what is it that we're being warned against? And this talks here about our warning of not falling away. So, what's involved in falling away is not simply a change of mind. It's not simply abandoning some foundational truths of Christianity. What's involved in falling away is what we see in verse 8. A life that has soaked in the goodness of God year after year after year, and yet produces no fruit. No fruit. Not one small little raspberry bush in the corner. There's no fruit. So the issue here is not primarily doctrinal, but practical. So the people that are being talked about in Hebrews 6 are unwilling to put their faith into practice. They've become dull, right and wrong. have become hazy, which we saw two weeks ago. And through their drifting and neglect, They've become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and have fallen away. So it's not simply just doubting the, that Jesus is the Son of God or doubting some doctrinal truth. It's a practical issue that's involved here. And so what is the danger? So a warning needs to be taken seriously because of the danger it seeks to keep us from. So with every warning... There's a danger to be avoided, so if you see the sign, bridge freezes before road, you proceed with a certain amount of caution. If you see a sign, bridge out, the danger is that you're going to go off to your death, right? So the danger behind the warning changes a lot of how serious we view the warning. So we saw the action falling away from Christ. And what is the danger that follows? Is it a loss of rewards in heaven? Is it not experiencing the fullness of the Christian life here on earth? Is it temporary discipline from God? And from what I see in verses 7 and 8, the danger here is final, complete separation from God forever. We see this in the picture of the two farmlands. Verses 7 and 8. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. In the same way, if you look at Hebrews 10. <clears throat> Hebrews 10.35. is keeping your soul. The reward for shrinking back is destruction. So we're not playing around here. It's not fun and games. It's not some minor thing that is at stake. When we receive this warning to not fall away, but to persevere in our faith, the danger is not a temporary discipline from God. It's not a jewel taken out of your crown. It's the eternal judgment and separation from the beauty and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And there's just something about the imagery in Hebrews 10 of trampling over the Son of God that just doesn't line up with the jewel being taken out of your crown. So we shouldn't try to minimize the awesomeness of the warning by saying it's just a loss of a reward. On top of the seriousness of the danger, we have the very sobering statement that it is impossible to restore them to repentance, which we read in those four verses. And I agree with what you just thought. That's a tough one. But I want you to keep in mind a few things. God never denies genuine repentance. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish. And he is patient, 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 desiring that all would come to repentance. And that needs to be the desire of our heart as well, because in James it says, That we should work with people who have wandered to bring them back to the faith. That we should seek repentance for them. Nonetheless, we have this verse here telling us that there will come a point that it will be impossible for someone who's fallen away to repent. So two takes on this. And both fit and both are equally sober. One would be, if you reject Jesus, if you taste the goodness of God and decide that the world tastes better, run to live your own life. There may come a point when your heart becomes so hard, you've become so addicted to the world, that for you, it is impossible to repent. That your eyes will be so clouded over with your love for your sin and the lies you've been fed, that you no longer even see the truth clearly that you see now. Another take on this, which is no less alarming, is that the impossibility for repentance comes when the person who falls away dies. There are no second chances after death. The author of Hebrews will tell us in just a few chapters that it's appointed that man die once, and then comes judgment. When your heart stops beating, when you take a final breath, repentance is no longer possible. And when we realize that our life is a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes and that undoubtedly someone in this room will not be here in ten years, it's this warning that stands in the way of our thinking that says, I'll just continue in my sin and I'll come to God at another day because we're not guaranteed another day. Today, if you hear His voice, Do not harden your heart. So we have a warning here. A very real, serious, terrifying warning. A warning that falling away will result in eternal separation from God. And it doesn't stand alone. The warning in chapter 6 is echoed in chapter 2. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 3, take care brothers lest there be any of you with an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 10, which we read. Chapter 12, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And there they sit. We don't read them by choice. If we do, we don't ponder them very long. They're not on our bookmarks or our Bible covers. They don't show up on the Joy FM verse of the day. But nonetheless, they are there. And if we had time, we could look at Revelation 2 and 3, the warnings in James, the warnings in First John, and the warnings from Jesus himself. But really, when you think about it, they have to be in the Bible, because all our talk about perseverance, even back through the Psalms, we talked about perseverance. We talk about perseverance for the last eight weeks of Hebrews. If the warnings aren't there, it makes no sense to preach about perseverance. So, if you felt that, maybe even you weren't able to verbalize it, but all this need, all this talk of the need to grow, all the talk of the need to press on, to persevere, to grow into maturity, it makes no sense unless there are these warnings attached to it. So, the warning is spread out before us. We see it, a warning not to fall away, not to be a fruitless field. And it's a warning that comes with the greatest possible danger. Not loss of rewards. Not loss of a you know, resort on the river of life. It's the terrifying prospect of eternal judgment and separation from God in hell. That's our warning we see in Hebrews 6, 48. And you might have lots of questions right now about the warnings. The giant one probably is can this falling away happen to a true believer? Can I be born again, justified, adopted as a child of God, sealed by His Spirit, and then suffer this end? I want you to hold on to that question, because we've got a lot more of Hebrews 6 to look at. So put that boiling pot of warnings on the back burner. We've looked at four verses, and there's still, still 12 more to go. And surprisingly, it contains some words we might not expect to see after such a severe warning, words like sure, assurance, hope, and the reminder again of this guy named Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did. Okay? So let's look at the promise. Hebrews 6. inherit the promises. So after all these harsh warnings, one would expect the desire of God would be for his people to quake in fear when thinking of their future. But we're going to see the author of Hebrews here expresses his desire for people to have that assurance. He says he's sure of their salvation. He wants them to be assured in their hope. And so that desire we're going to see in the next section, springs from the greater desire of God to have His people feel that same way. Okay? So let's look at 13 to 20. So the author wants them to have full assurance, and we see that this is really just going to come from the greater desire of God in 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll get to the Melchizedek thing in a few weeks, so don't worry about that. But we see that even after this harsh, severe warning, it's not God's desire that we be quaking in fear, thinking about our future, never knowing where we stand with God or what his feelings are toward us. Here we see that God has a great, deep desire that we be a people of unshakable hope. He wants his children to be totally confident and assured about their future. He wants you to be utterly convinced that you are an heir of promise, a descendant of Abraham, a child of the Most High God. And we see that he desires this so much, he even goes one step further than giving the promise. We see in verse 18 that there are two unchangeable things here. First, he gives the promise And the second is the oath that he takes to validate the promise. Okay? So, when you make a promise, if you want to validate that promise, you take an oath, okay, on something you deem as valuable. So, people will say, I swear on my life, I will do this. I swear on the Bible, this and this. I swear on my mother's life, this and this and this, right? They pick something they they see as valuable and they use that as the oath to validate their promise. And so God shows us the validity of His promise by swearing on the one thing of infinite beauty, infinite worth, infinite honor, infinite greatness, infinite power, the one thing that is perfect love and goodness and holiness and justice He swears by himself. Because he had no one greater to swear by. God makes an oath to show his intensity in seeing his promise through. And he shows you how passionate he is in you having a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul that he swears by himself. He doesn't want you to worry about your future. His, his desire is not for His children to be full of anxiety. He wants them assured of their hope in Him. And verse 13 shows us that if it were possible to, him, to for Him to have expressed that in an even greater way, He would have. But He had no greater way because He's the greatest. And so He swore by Himself. He reached up as far as possible Himself so that your assurance could be planted securely in his promise. And so what is your hope? What is our promise that we're to hold on to, that God desires for us to hold on to as our sure and steadfast anchor? We see in verse 20 that it's Jesus, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and the finished work on the cross for your salvation. Our hope, our anchor, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. God desires that we have security, that we have stability, that we have assurance, and we are to find those things in Jesus, our great high priest, whose sacrifice alone can take away our sins and bring us to the Father. Whose finished work on the cross alone has the power To forgive our sins, cancel our debt, absorb the wrath of God, reconcile us to the Father, free us from the fear of death, take away our condemnation, and destroy the works of the devil. He is the one who tore the curtain in the temple in two and is our forerunner into the presence of God. If you want to flip back to Hebrews 10... who promised, is faithful. That is our hope. That is our assurance. And God desires that we are confident in our salvation because of what His Son accomplished for us through His death. He makes a promise. He takes an oath because His desire for you is to be absolutely confident in Him in all things, including your salvation. Because if you can't be confident with him in your salvation, you can't be confident in him with much. If he can't do the one thing that only he can do, then how do you, how do you have confidence in him with your family? How do you have confidence in him with raising your kids? How, do you have, how does Lisa have that confidence that he shared, she shared this morning if she can't be confident in his salvation? And when we look around scriptures, these themes shouldn't be anything new to us. Ephesians 2.8 makes it very clear our salvation in every way is not our doing. It's not by our works, but by Jesus' works on the cross. And even the faith that we have in that work for our salvation is a gift that comes from God. In John 10.28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8 says that those who God predestined, He also called, who He called, He justified, who He justified, He will glorify. And there's nothing in there that breaks that chain. Paul says in Philippians 1, that He who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts attached to it. And Ephesians 1 says that God chose us before the foundation of the world and predestined us to be adopted as his children. So the Bible tells us we can be assured of our salvation because our assurance doesn't rest on us, but on the power of God and the infinite worth of the blood of Jesus. So we've laid out the promise. We've still got the warnings boiling on the back burner back there. but you can see Hebrew 6 represents so well the whole of Scripture in that it contains the strong stern warning about our need to persevere lest we fall away and the precious promises of our assurance in our salvation. And if we see them, we see that there is a tension there and so how do we Resolve that. We've got both pots at full boil now. The warnings of falling away and the promises of being saved. So throughout church history and looking at this tension, people have swung to the extreme ends of the pendulum and anywhere in between from downplaying or interpreting away the promises and landing with the idea that you can become adopted, become a child of God, redeemed, sealed by His Spirit, but then if you have a bad Monday, He's kicking you out of the family. Here's hoping I die on a Sunday because my eternity hangs in the balance. To, hey, you said a prayer at summer camp when you were 12 and now the warnings don't apply to you, so eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow you'll go to heaven. Here's hoping I don't die for a while because for me to live is to fulfill the desires of my flesh and to die is gain. So seeing those two extremes on how to take the promises and warnings, two big questions arise from each side. The first, can a true believer, a person who is genuinely born again, justified, sealed by the Spirit, can he then fall away from Christ to eternal judgment? And I believe the promises in Scripture, the promises that have no conditions attached, show us, no, they cannot. Those who God predestined will be glorified. When God begins His good work in us, He will carry it on to completion. When God grabs us, He does not let go. We just don't, See this outside of Hebrews, we see this truth confirmed in the same book that contains some of the most stern warnings. So Hebrews 10.14 says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That means if you're a Christian this morning, when Jesus died, he perfected you for eternity. In other words, Jesus doesn't change his mind about you. If you look at Hebrews 3.14, it says that we have become partakers with Christ if we persevere to the end. It doesn't say we will become partakers with Christ if we persevere to the end. It says we have become, present tense, right now, we are partakers in Christ if we persevere to the end. So our perseverance to the end doesn't make us partakers in Christ, but it shows that we were a part of Christ all along. And if you read 1 John 2.19, it says that there will be some who will fall away, and by their falling away, it shows that they were never with us in the first place, because if they were, they would have continued with us. So when someone walks away from Jesus and never repents, it shows outwardly where they were at inwardly all along, even though it appeared they were. Their lack of perseverance shows that they were never partakers in Christ, which shouldn't surprise us too much because Jesus warned that there will be some who will have prophesied, cast out demons, and even performed many miracles and yet still did not know Him. So we cannot lose our salvation when you're adopted into the family of God. He does not then kick you out of the family. The question from the other side then is, should we as Christians take seriously the warnings? Should we apply the warnings to ourselves? To which I would say, yes, we should take the warnings extremely seriously. Why should we take the warning seriously? Just looking at chapter 6 tells us that we should take the warnings seriously. The author of Hebrews says in verse 9 that he's sure of their salvation. He has a solid confidence that his readers will not fall away. They are going to persevere. And he knew this when he gave them the warning five verses earlier. He didn't come to a realization of their salvation between verses 8 and 9. Okay? Okay? He was sure about their perseverance, yet he wanted them to read the warning and take it to heart. Because every person chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be adopted as his child will heed the warnings without question. Because the promise comes to pass pass through the warning, not apart from it the severe warnings and the grace of God and his promises are not against each other they work together to secure our salvation the warnings are god's great love displayed to us to keep us from wandering down paths that lead away from him and will be saved on the day of the lord not by ignoring them but by taking them very seriously the warnings support your assurance Because they make you aware of the danger of your drifting and push you back to obedient faith in Jesus Christ, the source of your assurance. So we should be confident, trembling Christians. Confident in the unbreakable promises of God and trembling at the terrifying nature of the warnings. I'll give you a picture to help <clears throat> help you see what, what I see, okay? For a river to move forward, for a river to have direction and eventually reach its destination and flow into the sea, it needs two strong banks guiding it forward. And your Christian life is like that river. Sometimes straight, sometimes winding, but always flowing towards eternity with Christ. The promises and the warnings of Scripture are the banks of of the river. Both are needed because just like a river when we lose a bank, we spread thin, shallow, stagnant, and are in danger of never reaching our destination. When all we see are the warnings and we're blind to his promises, we don't grow because we're paralyzed living anxiety-filled lives, lying in bed at night staring at the ceiling. We're unable to grasp His promises of our salvation, and our mind becomes a revolving door of am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out, and we lack the assurance needed to live the Christian life. And if that's where you're at this morning, full of anxiety, no assurance, no security, no anchor of hope to cling to. See the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your salvation. And see God's great desire for your confidence in Him. On the other hand, when we ignore the warnings and just cling to His promises, we don't grow because it's too easy to coast. Why should I grow into maturity? I'm saved. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I'm good. I heard you the other week talk about all this need for growing up, for growing in Christ. but I'm too busy, and there are other things that concern me. I'm a baby, and I'm fine with that. And if that was your attitude leaving two weeks ago, uh, why would I bother attitude? God sees your drifting. He sees your apathy. And in His great love, He gives you the warning. The warning of Hebrews says, you better stop drifting. You better stop neglecting your salvation, you better stop hardening your heart to my voice because you're becoming dull, you're becoming sluggish, right and wrong are getting hazy and you're in danger of having your heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and falling away from me. And from where I stand, neither of those positions produce healthy, mature Christians who enjoy God, walk in His Spirit, build his kingdom, shine light in the darkness, walk in a manner worthy of their calling, run the race for the glory of God and the joy set before them. And my desire is to be that Christian, and my desire is for you to have that desire to be that Christian. If you think back last week when Don preached, do you remember what he said his one desire was? At 70-some years old, after being faithful to God for years and years and years, he said his one desire was to not mess it up. So is Don assured of his salvation? Does he know that he's saved? Yes. So confidently, he asks you often if you are as confident as he is. The promises are doing their work of stirring his passion for eternity in the presence of an infinitely joyful God to the point where he said it was like he was on the bank of the river and he could hear the angels singing on the other side. But does he take seriously the warnings? Yes. And the warnings are doing their work of disengaging any affection for the world, shining a bright light on the ugliness of sin and the result. Is that he's mature in Christ. He is a confident, trembling Christian. If you look at Colossians 1, and we'll end with this Colossians 1 27, finishes by saying, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's your assurance. There's your steadfast anchor. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Why do we focus on Christ, our hope of glory, and yet have warnings too? Because we want to present you mature in Christ. So I just want you to know that as an elder of this church, and I speak for Joe and Gary and Kevin as well, Colossians 1.27-29 is our job description. Okay. To show you your great assurance in the finished work of Christ. To give you the warnings because our desire is to present you mature in Christ. And if I can, by teaching the Word of God, shore up those two banks of your river, by God's grace, that's what I want to do Because I want to see you flow to your destination. The promise is unbreakable. Take serious the warnings. Love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace on us. We thank you for the truth of your word. And we just thank you for your great love. Your great love in the promises, we just see your great desire for us to be so solid in you and confident in what you've done for us, and we see your great love in the warnings, and we thank you for the warnings, and and we just think of our own and our parenting, and the warnings we give our children isn't because we hate them, but our warnings to not play on the street, to not go here and not to eat that, stem from a great love we have for our children and we just thank you father for your your love that you display through your promises and through your warnings and we pray father that both banks of our river would be sure and solid and firm and those two banks would guide us to our destination in you father we can't wait to spend eternity in you and we pray that you would help us just to see all the distractions for what they are and to press on to maturity in you to press on to eternity with you in the presence of an infinitely joyful God who all he wants is our good. We thank you for that, Father. We want to bless you. We want to praise your name and glorify you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.